it gets extremely tiring to have to laugh off microaggressions and be like, Haha, yeah, that's not cool, but I can't say anything. And eventually it leads to a really large turnover in the industry of people of color. Microaggressions can lead to burnout, direct correlation of increase in microaggressions, increase in burnout, meaning that people will leave the industry for spaces in which they don't have to experience that. You're listening to Strong Asian Lead, a podcast platform for Asians across the diaspora to share their stories about what it means to be an Asian creative in the entertainment industry. Throughout this podcast, you'll hear me and my guests have deep discussions about the industry, the paths they forged, and their unique experiences on and off the film set. Thank you for tuning in. Our mission as Strong Asian Lead is to amplify the creative power of the Asian entertainment diaspora, create space for artists to tell their stories, and provide resources to support emerging artists in their careers. My name is David Musami Moria. I'm an entrepreneur, career coach, screenwriter, and activist. But I'm not going to introduce myself too much, because this podcast isn't about me. It's about you, Asian Hollywood. Have you ever been in the production office, on set, in the writer's room, or generally minding your own damn business when somebody comes up to you and asks a random question like, what are you? Where are you from? No, no, no. Where are you really from? Or makes a comment about your skin color, your hair, or the aroma of your food. Yeah, it might sound like an innocent question to the person who's asking, but as people of color, it has a different impact on us. These are called microaggressions. And we as people who are trying to keep our jobs be nice and not cause any conflict, we often have to put it on a smile and bear the burden of their ignorance. The intent of one thing versus the impact it has on another person can be very different. And when we are constantly asked these questions in the workplace, it adds this added weight of othering us when our white counterparts aren't asked these same questions based off their skin color. They're not asking these same questions that make you feel othered. Ooh, what are you? It's like a zoo. <laughs> they come look at us and say, oh, you're different. And they, they put that on us. And why should we as people of color have to feel that way? And as Asians, we barely get to speak about it because a lot of times we're the only Asian in the room. <laughs> That's a whole nother episode because at the same time, we can't validate our feelings if there's no one else to help us validate that. This week, my co-host Emilia Kamamoto returns for a two-part episode on microaggressions. If you recall from the first episode, Emmy is the founder of Defiant Changemakers. She's an inclusion and belonging coach and consultant. She helped me co-found Strong Asian Lead in 2020. And having previously been on the diversity and inclusion industry, she and I have had deep discussions about what it means to be a person of color in the entertainment industry. This week on Strong Asian Lead, we are talking about microaggressions and call-in culture. How do we get past them? How do we work with that in the workplace when we feel discriminated against? We have to start speaking, right? We have to call people in, call people out, combat and interrupt microaggressions as they're happening or else they're just going to keep happening. Yeah. And microaggressions is one of those new terms. I feel like that's yeah. a new phrase that's coming within the last couple of years with the sure. with a push for diversity, equity, inclusion. So Emmy, tell us what are, what are microaggressions and how do they come into the workplace? Microaggressions are a tough one because if you aren't aware of them, you have a very, very hard time understanding like, wait, why don't I feel so great when someone says something to me? And one way I like to describe microaggressions, which is kind of an unpleasant 
view of it, but microaggressions can be like a death from a thousand paper cuts. They're tiny, subtle, brief, but often occurring like unconscious messages that someone will say to a group of people or around an identity that discounts that person's identity. So a few examples are like, I don't see color. That is a microaggression because what you're doing is you're discounting the historical inequities that have occurred to people because of their race and their skin color. Where are you actually from? That's something that as Asian Americans, we get all the time, right? Um, Where are you from? Where are you actually from? Like, who are you really? That also discredits your identity as an American. So when these microaggressions build up, they become really, really problematic. David, have you ever seen the video, The Microaggression Mosquito? We've used in diversity, equity, and inclusion trainings to help people understand how microaggressions can build up and impact over time. But just like a mosquito bite, when you get a mosquito bite, one or two is not so bad. But when you have a ton of mosquito bites, suddenly your whole body goes into shock reaction, right? And you just feel really uncomfortable. And what people who are the majority and and oftentimes like white folks don't experience is that buildup of these little microaggressive cuts. Their identities, their experiences, their movements throughout the world are not questioned all the time. Why are you using chopsticks, et cetera, things like that? Yeah. You know, I've definitely had the question of where are you really from? And then I say California. You know, where where your parents from? Uh, California. No, their parents, California. They don't believe that. And I think what happens when I when I get those kinds of questions is it's in it's subconsciously it goes to say, you don't believe me yeah. when I say something you don't believe that I'm saying is true. Mm-hmm. And sometimes those things are not out of they're not doing it out of malice. I feel like generally they're trying to be genuine. Maybe they're nervous to talk about race. <laughs> it becomes a place where if it happens in the workplace, especially when it's in a group of people or when they're more experienced than I am. And then I want to keep a good, positive relationship with that person because they might be that next ticket to the job. I don't want to give them like, hey, that's, uh, I don't like that. And it makes them feel uncomfortable. They might not want to work with me. So how do people in the workplace, Asian Americans, any person of color, when they have a question like that, what are your best practices that we can do to alleviate that pain from ourselves while also helping our coworkers understand that it's not from a place of, I'm trying to hurt you or make you mad, but I have to stick up for my own self. Yeah. You bring up an extremely important point that describes the dilemma that microaggressions put people into. Microaggressions, because they're often subconscious from the person that's perpetuating that microaggression, they don't think that their words are harmful. This is where we really have to call in something that's important. The intention of your words does not equal the impact that they're going to make. Just because your intention is good doesn't mean that it gets received well. You don't know if the person you're asking, if you can touch their hair or that their hair is so cool. You don't know what their experience has been being teased or bullied for their hair type. And that can cut and really hurt them and really frustrate them. So I think it's really important that not only the people who are experiencing microaggressions know how to navigate these conversations, like what you're asking right now. But the first step is for all of us to recognize that at some point in time, 
we have perpetuated a microaggression and that we are often going to continue perpetuating microaggressions until we recognize what they are. So I would say the first step is all of us need to like look up what is a microaggression, what are examples of microaggressions so that we can start to see what damage we're causing on the daily. And that will help us if we do get called out for perpetuating microaggressions, help us be like, ooh, okay, you're right. That that was, if you're experiencing this as a microaggression, I better take a minute and listen to you and, and think about what I said. When we were talking earlier, I mentioned that I've definitely said at some point in time, oh, my colleague or my boss is so like crazy and emotional. And that was particularly if I'm referring to a female colleague is really harmful because perpetuating this really awful stereotype that being emotional is bad in the workplace and that it's bad, especially, and it's a trait that women have. So it starts to degrade the identity of women in the workplace. So first step is recognizing that we all perpetuate microaggressions. And so we all have something we can do about it. I'd love to hear, David, what's an example of a microaggression you're experiencing? Can you walk us through the emotions that you felt? Yeah. This past year, I was on basically my first job back in Hollywood. And I was talking to a friend and he was just being casual. He's a cool dude. And he said, David, what's your ethnicity? What's your, what's your background? I'm Japanese American. He said, you're dark for a Japanese. Hmm. Uh, okay. I'm not going to make a ruckus out of this. I'm like, yeah, no, uh, I'm Japanese. Just like move on. And because mm-hmm. I knew if I said something, we're all in like an open area workplace. Like if I start saying something like, well, you know, that's, that's Japanese are farmers. They're dark. My mind ran through a ton of different things that I knew were, that I wanted to stick up for myself and, and correct them. But I knew if I had done that, I'd get some looks at me. He's, he's being difficult. Who would want to hire him again if he's going to bring up stuff like that? I'm in a group of uh, white coworkers. So I couldn't do anything. And that's yeah. how I felt. That was the most recent thing uh, that had happened to me because I understand how it impacted me and that they should know how it impacts me. I also understand their intent. And I'm only going to take it at it at its intention. It's more about how they said it. And so I understand, but I am also very tired of having to comply and say, okay, that was their intention. This is fine. Okay. I just want them to stop doing that. I want them to stop perpetuating these microaggressions and saying things that are against my skin color, slant of my eyes, anything like that. Like it sounds so I'm being judged for those things. I just wanted to stop. I think a lot of people wanted to stop. Like we just, you get pointed out and then you don't have, as an Asian American, you don't have any Asians in the room to back you up. So if you did fight about it and then like, no, he, no, I agree with him. Like no one's there to help you with that. And so that's what issues I see in the workplace for Asian Americans and it happens all the time and you can't combat it. So it's a really, it's a really big juggle and we want to call in. That's what happens in the workplace and Asians don't get to talk about it because we just want to move on. You use a crucial word right there. And we've said it a few times in this podcast before, but calling in, there is a difference between calling out and calling in someone. Calling out is something that you can do. It's an action that you can take to say, hey, that wasn't cool. Like that perpetuates a microaggression and it's problematic. It's harmful. That's a call out, right? You just state that there. But what we have to understand is that we can't just call out without reflecting, taking a moment to reflect what the power dynamics are in the room, right? 
usually the only people who can call out are bystanders that are not having that microaggression perpetuated against them. They also typically have to be people who have power, right? So if your boss calls out somebody else, they're not going to get in trouble, right? They're the boss. But if it was another assistant, it was like, hey, boss, like that wasn't okay. Their their job is at risk. And we want to be really, really conscious about the fact that we're in the middle of a pandemic and people can't afford to lose their jobs. So one of the things that we've taught, we I've been taught in, in diversity, equity, and inclusion trainings around microaggressions and that I teach my clients as well is like the first thing we need to do is take a minute to pause, observe the situation, who has power in the room, what is your role, are you a bystander, are you the person that's having that microaggression done to you? Emotionally, how are you feeling? Would you come in hot right now if you had to respond? Like, would you be mad and angry or would you just be silent? Take a moment to reflect on all all of these things and then decide what are you going to utilize? Which tool are you going to use it? The call in or the call out? So I mentioned a call out is a very direct like, hey, that was wrong. A call in is a way to invite someone into a closer conversation. That can take place in front of a group. But as you mentioned, you know, in an open air workspace, like you don't necessarily want to draw attention, make the person who's perpetuated that microaggression feel dumb, right? That's not a goal that's going to make them defensive. So there's an opportunity that after that conversation to call them in and say, hey, you know, I just want to call you in on something that you said earlier that I think perpetuates microaggressions. And in that, in your example too, you can share... I understand that your intent isn't to harm anybody by your comment about the how brown I am, but I do want to just call in that this actually can has impacted the Asian American community in a really negative way. The colorism within our community creates problems where there's like a, a, a stratification that the darker you are, the less worthy you are, the less valuable because you're seen as a hard working class person versus the crystal white skin of like the royalty, right? And yeah. then you, that becomes a teaching moment. But if a call-in becomes a teaching moment, that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be the teacher every time microaggression occurs. But if we want to stop microaggressions, we need to get comfortable saying, hey, can we talk about this and move forward? And some of the, the lines that I particularly like to use are, you know, I want to ask you about something you said earlier when you mentioned that you know, I look, you know, brown for a Japanese person. What did you mean by that comment? What What does the color of a Japanese person mean to you? And you come in with curiosity and usually it makes them fumble and they're like, oh, I realized like that wasn't really a cool thing to say, but maybe there is something that you both can learn from that conversation. And then a more like direct way to, to state it is, is there something about my identity that made you say that or made you feel comfortable in saying that in that moment? Mm. Because it perpetuates a microaggression. Um, so having some of these lines in your back pocket when you experience a microaggression can be helpful to interrupting them. But you, first of all, really do want to take a minute to observe and pause and think like, okay, is my job going to be on the line if I say something? How does this person respond to feedback? Do I have a relationship with them where I could call them aside? And if I don't have that relationship, maybe I can seek an ally. Maybe there's somebody else that can help me talk through it. 
So, okay. So let's say we're in the same situation. You've given yeah. me, you give me this line of, you know, what do you mean by that comment? I call you in on that. It's like, but then they respond. Oh no, I was just making a joke. That is just a joke. Can't you just take a joke? Take a joke. It's just Ooh, a joke. That one we get a lot. Mm. Right. Well, where do you come from? Where, where do you stand on that? How do you, what's the next follow-up? My next follow-up is kind of intense. So this is when people can leave or take, but, um, I will usually say, well, your joke is something that perpetuates a bias against people of my identity. So it may be a joke to you, but after a lot of buildup, this impacts the perception that people have around people of my identity. And usually I'll mention that there is a five-step path to genocide within people and within communities. The first step is language. Changing the language that we have about people helps us dehumanize them. For example, calling Japs chink, calling like the the Jews, the way that they've been treated and the way that we're talked about in Germany led to this mass dehumanization of Jewish people and thus a crazy huge complicit narrative amongst Germany that allowed for the Holocaust to take place, right? So it may seem extreme to people that your language about an identity or your perpetuation of microaggressions could lead to genocide, but it has happened. It is always, language is always the first tool that's used to dehumanize a community and thus make it easier for them to be killed. So usually I'll go that extreme because I'm in this line of work. See, I like that extremeness. I like, I need that <laughs> upfrontness, but here's, here's my, uh, the next, the next phase of their aggressive tactics. Yes. What's with all this race? I, I just don't want to see race anymore. It's really tiring. I, you know, this is, we are diverse. Don't you see you're in this place? Can't you just leave race at the door? Oh my God. Yes. That is also in itself a direct microaggression. I don't see color. I don't understand why we keep talking about race. If we stopped talking about race, we wouldn't have racism anymore. Like didn't the civil rights, uh, didn't we have the civil rights in the sixties? We ended racism back then, didn't we? Oh, it's gone. It's completely gone. We know we don't have any problems. Yeah. We're good. It's 2020. Get with the times. Oh my gosh. Well, luckily yeah, most so. people can't even say we're good. It's 2020. No. Just point blank, right? Because 2020 has been a sh such a shit show. But I thank you for calling that one in because that is a great example of people who refuse to see the equity issue. So having a space that has many different identities represented. Inclusion means that every single identity that is represented is valued and respected. That they are treated not quite not exactly like the same, but with value and respect. We don't want everybody to be treated poorly, right? We don't want everybody to just be treated the same, but treated with value and respect. Equity is the acknowledgement that there has been systemic and historical injustice that has allowed certain types of people to rise and others to be kept back by system, by redlining, by um, unequal pay, by lack of parental leave rights, et cetera. So when people say that, oh, isn't racism over? Aren't we fine? I just want to check racism at the door. Usually I'll say something like, that would be wonderful if we could do that. But we have a lot of years of terrible history that has made injustice and 
a part of everything that like is in our system. It's embedded. We have to acknowledge that there are inequities here that allow you, Brad, <laughs> to excel without needing to be challenged. People will give you opportunities because of your identity. And, and this is an opportunity for you to acknowledge that people will take away opportunities because they have some misconception or stereotype about that type of people, which it honestly can become a little difficult with the model minority myth, right? Because people are like, oh, Asians are so hardworking. They produce so much. They are very subservient. Those are some of the model minority myths that um, you would think would mean like, oh, let's hire the Asian people. But that doesn't correlate at all because if that was the case, we would see the same number of Asian CEOs um, in our country as white CEOs. Model Mm -hmm. minority myth is in fact a myth um, and it's conveniently used to just pit people of color against each other for us to think, oh, you know, for Asians to think, oh, we're better than other uh, other people of color. And then for other people of color to be like, oh, those Asians, they're basically white. Right. basically have all the same privileges. Well, and the laws back in the early 1900s, that's what they were. For one point, Asians were considered white. That mm-hmm. was in the law. And then it changed that Asians are not white. Why yeah. did the law change like that kind of stuff? It was like outstanding to see like which who can become citizens or not. Yeah. And, and those were like one-off cases, right? We had the, the Sikh American man who said mm-hmm. that he wanted to become white on his identity card, mm-hmm. no longer Asian. And he won that case. There are multiple cases of Asians winning the whiteness case, which is perpetuated and made this legal grounds. When they're born in America, they were the 14th Amendment. They had all the rights as the citizens, but they described them as not white. So they weren't given the same legal counsel and they weren't given, the, they did not win those cases. Yeah. It was, and those are the things that happen. Because they're because labels are put onto each other. Yeah. Even though the law has changed and Hollywood has changed, because we, we had this whole period of white Hollywood was the beginning of all of Hollywood, basically. Mm-hmm. And so who are they gonna hire? They're friends. And if they're not yeah. friends with people of color, they're not hiring those people. And then we get to the nineties where you get independent films. Okay. So only people who can make independent films is if you had money. You have Kevin right. Smith who put everything like twenty seven thousand dollars on credit cards. Like who has that? And then it keeps going. And then we have to have this diversity inclusion policy. And then you're like, well, then I don't want to have to hire somebody. It's taking away jobs from white people. Okay. Well, Hollywood is always going to be tons of jobs. It's never, it's a never ending job. Even if there's a finite number today, tomorrow, there's a new set. So it's always going to be something else. It's that whole affirmative action policy and around like people go and say, well, you're taking away stuff from Asians. I'm like, no, you're not. Like, it's it's including other people. It's, you're not going to take away jobs from people because uh, you're adding diversity. You want to add those things. Like, you have to think about almost the benefits of adding other perspectives that you're getting there. Because you need that. You need that in Hollywood. Yeah. You need where are they coming from. What If you're telling a story, you can't just have all white people telling a black story, an Asian story, or a Muslim story. Like, it's not going to work. You're right. going to get and a lot of flack. Hollywood should be making the newest stories, right? Stories that people have never heard before that have not been produced by Hollywood before. And those stories are going to come from other places. 
but they should come from other places without being appropriated, right? Like right. Saigon Gardens, the movie Saigon Gardens, is that what it's called? Is that the war one? With, it's with Chris Pratt. Yeah. Chris yeah. Pratt. And and that's a remake of a Vietnamese movie that was created. And there's no reason why that movie has to star a white actor in Hollywood. There are plenty of Asian actors and Vietnamese and Vietnamese American actors that could play in this movie. But there is this limited scarcity mindset that we have to utilize the the same formulas that have made money for us in the past. There's this fear that breaking that mold will mean that the movies will fail. And I mean, that's where I question the soul of Hollywood. Do you only seek to make movies to make money? Part of me knows the answer is yes for many people. But this is the space that you and I get to bring to the table what would it look like to make films that have a positive social impact and make the world a better place and have Hollywood take that full responsibility? And I feel like we've, we've definitely ventured back into representation world. How do microaggressions lead to a lack of representation? The example that you brought up, David, is actually one of the exact ways that microaggressions can lead to a lack of representation your experience and my own experience in this industry having been microaggressed means that we we step out of a set or a boardroom or a, a, an executive meeting with a paper cut on our arm that suddenly something was said in the meeting that diminished our value. One of the examples that I've heard a lot is someone interrupts you and says, well, actually, I think and speaks over you. Mm-hmm indicating that they think their words are more valuable than yours. And usually it's based on some identity factor, either you're a woman or you're Asian, something like that. Um, You walk out of there, suddenly your value has been diminished in the eyes of everybody around you. And you're walking around with a paper cut and you feel conflicted. You're like, I want to say something, but I don't know if I can say something. And that perpetuates. Eventually, as those microaggressions keep happening, more and more paper cuts you start to bleed out. Death by a thousand paper cuts means that it gets extremely tiring to have to laugh off microaggressions and be like, Haha, yeah, that's not cool, but I can't say anything. And eventually it leads to a really large turnover in the industry of people of color. Microaggressions can lead to burnout, direct correlation of increase in microaggressions, increase in burnout, meaning that people will leave the industry for spaces in which they don't have to experience that. I think that we need to create spaces within entertainment that we can kind of come together, share experiences with microaggressions, share our tools and tips in navigating them and how to interrupt them in those moments. But we also need, on the other hand, like corporate environments, studios, directors, writers, producers, managers, we need them all to start taking responsibility for microaggressive tendencies and understanding what they are because you're going to lose talent by allowing microaggressions to exist in your environments. And we, as people of color within the industry, will face extreme amounts of burnout from this. And I don't think it's helpful to to have burnout and then just, you know, have this Japanese slash Japanese American mindset of gaman, which is I'm going to 
be resilient. I'm just going to keep pushing through. I'm going to ignore all the microaggressions because that doesn't actually make any waves of change behind you. It means that microaggressions are going to keep perpetuating and somebody else is going to have to hit that wall behind you. We're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our, well, not sponsors, but we just want to uplift some great people who are doing amazing work. CAAM, also known as CAM, the Center for Asian American Media, is a nonprofit organization dedicated to presenting stories that convey the richness and diversity of Asian American experiences to the broadest audience possible. They do this by funding, producing, distributing, and exhibiting works in film, television, and digital media. For 40 years, CAM has exposed audiences to new voices and communities, advancing our collective understanding of the American experience through programs specifically designed to engage the Asian American community and the public at large. Now, back to my interview with Emmy Leia Kamamoto. I feel that burnout. I think that's part of the reason why I left Hollywood in the first place. Because mm-hmm. I was I was like, I don't want to go to Hollywood. I was after college, I could I had the choice I can go to go to Hollywood, do the LA thing, or I can go somewhere else. And I was like, I don't see myself every time I go to an Asian set, they're talking about being Asian and accentuating, I guess that's the word. It's like they're they're playing on the stereotypes broken mm. accents there but they're asian representation but they're just doing it themselves so we're still making fun of asians but we, at least we have asians doing it yeah i mean my uh, communities of color can and we like microaggress the shit out of ourselves yeah especially asians i knew that that was like one of my main deflection strategies to help other people of color and other white people feel comfortable around me i would make jokes about chopsticks mm-hmm. and um, being good or bad at math. And I thought it was okay. I was like, oh, but I'm making it about my own identity and myself. But it becomes a reality. That's where stereotype threat comes in, right? Like we start talking about these stereotypes, we keep elevating them. And that becomes the perception that people walk away with. All Asians have the ability to use chopsticks really well, or um, that they're all smart, nerdy doctors, et cetera. Why can't we just break this narrative? We limit ourselves with that narrative. Yeah. And don't challenge ourselves to imagine what we can be, what we actually When we start making fun of ourselves, we're degrading our own culture. We're we're degrading that identity, saying this is is the funny thing about it and not having to do it. Right, and that it's not normal when it is normal for a majority of the world if you're Asian. Yeah. Two-thirds of the world is Asian. But- one of the negative impacts of microaggressions is that very emotional impact that we experience of our identities not feeling feeling valued, being unable to believe in yourself as a whole person because constantly wherever you go, your identity is questioned. Mm-hmm. We've spoken about the mixed race identity, and I can speak from having that identity that being asked, what are you? Every damn day, essentially starts making me think that I am not human. I am not good enough as I am. And so that impacts my confidence. It impacts the way I can walk through the world, the way I'll walk into a a pitch meeting, right? And that is another very bad effect of microaggressions is that our confidence is knocked, our identities are knocked, so that we feel like we have to put on a different skin or different identity when we walk into the room instead of representing who we truly are. And people can sniff that inauthenticity, right? And thus, they may not want to 
invest in those projects. They may not want to invest in you as somebody who's coming into your company. But if you walk in through the room with your swagger, with your pride, being like, I am Emilea Kamemoto, I am Japanese, and I am American. My mixed race and bicultural identity means that I can understand many different perspectives, and this is how it impacts your work positively. Then they start to see the value in my mixed race ass identity, you know, and I want to communicate that to them. But it's taken me years of undoing the effect that microaggressions and overt and covert racism has had upon my life to be able to get to that point. It's like this weird triple bladed sword mm. that you don't want to have to be identified as your race. Mm-hmm. You want to be identified as your work and who you are as a person. Yeah. So you push it aside, but then people ask you, what are you? And then you're like, okay, yeah. then I have to bring it back. And then they, then we give it to them. And they're like, well, you have to make it about race. I'm like you made it about <laughs> race first. And then, but at the same time, we wield that sword. So as long, if we go and say, this is who I am, you're hiring me because of this, because mm-hmm. you need my expertise in Japanese American culture or yeah. Japanese culture or in these things. Like I'm owning that. I'm owning that I'm Asian. I'm Asian American. I'm o- I'm generally only going to apply to Asian American things. I'm only I'm going to do these things for my culture. It's helped me get further in my career to own my Asian Americanness than it is to hide it. So I hide yes. it. I'm going into spaces that they don't see me as Asian American. They just want to, me to work. Give me the microaggressions. I get burned out. I do work hard. They like they mm-hmm. do bring me back. They don't. I don't. I don't feel like they're doing it because we need to hire an Asian. They're just, they are bringing me for my work ethic. But when I go to Asian American spaces and I see other Asians, I'm like, yes, this is the place where I need to be. We can always talk about the things that are happening. We see mm-hmm. each other. We know what the difference is in, in, the, ish, in the industry. So we're, under, we're at an understanding. Yeah. And so we can move forward from that. And then when we go in to say, I'm Japanese, you're Chinese, what's, what's your background like? I meet people on Twitter in the, in the film industry and I'll see something that's very specific. I'm like, tell me more about that. And they'll yeah. tell me a whole story. I think that diversity is a place where we're getting to, but we will not get to diversity without having spaces for us to come together with our own identity. Because we don't even have to, as you mentioned, we don't even have to worry about that racism coming in the same way. We can be our full selves. We will feel energized in those environments. And I don't know if anybody in our audience has experienced this or if you've experienced this, David, but like when you walk into a room and you feel like you can be yourself, don't you kind of produce more? Aren't you kind of more energetic and like amazing? I don't feel like I have to impress people. Yes. Yeah. And you don't have to act a certain way. It's like the code switching back to uh, normal rather than I have to impress you so I can get a job. It's, it's a weird thing and it shouldn't happen anyways, but it happens. Right. Because belonging is a factor of our happiness as human beings. And we belong in places where we find there's an affinity, there's a lived experience that is common. And right now, America is in a real reckoning, again, that we have been ignoring our commonalities and really focusing on our differences so much that we are now unable to find common ground, like even amongst our own groups and identities. And so so I think that it's important for us to like take the time to be in a space where we remember what belonging feels like so that we can bring that feeling belonging to other spaces as well. And I, I want us to all walk through the world 
Okay, I'll just say it. I all I want us all to walk through the world like white men do, feeling like they belong and that they have the right to be in every single space without ducking their shoulders or being subservient or or I mean, those are some some of the things that we as Asian Americans like battle against. But I want everybody to feel that same unabashed pride and comfort in their own identity. So let's keep practicing that in our affinity spaces. That's like why Strong Asian Lead exists, is to build the table from which all of us have a seat. Every Asian American, every Asian person in this industry has a seat that's waiting for them that they can just take at any point in time. And like somebody will be like, yo, where have you been? You belong here. We've been waiting for you. Not they come and sit at the table and everybody looks at them and whispers like, what are they doing? Diversity hire. Diversity hire. Oh my fucking God. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Diversity hire is a huge thing. And people think diversity hire. Great. We have a spot at the table like made for us to do something. But the writer's rooms think of it as this is a chore. They've earned that spot because they beat all the other diversities. But they don't. The writer's rooms don't think of that diversity hire as a real hire. Yeah. They're not paying the diverse writer. For them, it's not from the production company. It's from whatever agency gave them that seat. So mm, this, that is funding that job, right? You get hired on for a year. So mm-hmm. let's say you're on a, you're going oh. on the second season. If you want to keep that diversity hire on, you have to pay them out of production. Yeah, there's someone that you haven't budgeted, right? So most of the time, they just kick you off and get another diversity hire. Yeah, because they're not having to pay for that person. Ooh, ooh, you're calling in one of the solutions, right? You're calling out and calling in one of these diversity, equity, and inclusion solutions that have been created, right? Mm. Like, I that's a really delicate and important conversation to have. Like, what happens when we try to improve the diversity of Hollywood by creating more seats, by creating more accessibility? Does that really work if the receiving end, like the productions that receive people for their productions doesn't also have those values embedded. Like it, if there is also additional training for those productions saying like, this is the value that this person brings to your production, this particular person, not this identity group, right? Then maybe that person would get hired on for the second year, realizing like, because someone was able to communicate on behalf of the individual that was hired. Like we are putting this person in your production because they are the best for this job. They know the most about this. They are going to help you do X, Y, Z. You should really keep them on. That is like a key part that I don't think a lot of diversity, equity, and inclusion programs that place people like that are taking the extra step to do. Yeah. Well, now it makes me question who's running those diversity, equity, inclusion spaces. It sounds like performative action activism. Like they're not really doing it. They're putting a little bandaid on it, saying we're yeah. doing something, but they're not actually following through systemically to f- really fix the problem. They don't exactly. Uh, they probably don't think it's their issue to fix, but they're a part of the system. Right. That's actually like one of the dilemmas with with microaggressions and being a bystander to them, where you're like, I don't know if I. Sh- it's my place to say anything. We see that throughout this industry, whether it's on an individual basis in a room where microaggression is taking place or even in being a part of the solution for programs that place people from different identity factors and experiences into productions they're also 
not necessarily taking the responsibility of really holding this industry to a higher standard of inclusion, of belonging and saying like, we're going to put these people into places and give access that wasn't there before, but without really like following through and making sure that the industry as a whole is not just taking and using and tossing the the folks that become the quote unquote diversity hires. Yeah. And actually including them, right? Including right. making sure that they're included in the conversation. If they're not saying something, ask them. It's not necessarily your job as a showrunner to ask them. And it's your job as a writer to pitch things. But if they're not saying something as a leader, I think it's important to say, so what do you think? I want you haven't said anything in a minute. What what do you think? Bring them into the conversation. That's the inclusion part like making them feel included in the conversation. I definitely have been in spaces where I can still feel like I'm belonging. I'm allowed to come to the table, but I'm not allowed to say anything. And I yeah. don't know if I probably should have said anything, but I'm glad I did. I just, I'm going to take my job. I'm going to do the whole thing because I think this is a good idea or we can fix it this way. And they're going to take it. He ended up snooting me for two months worth of money. But same time, <laughs> like I'm going to do my thing. And as I was quitting, he was like, you're a good director. Don't let that don't let that get away from you. Yeah. So he's kind of like playing the tools of the industry where yeah. they will withhold money thinking that the experience is, is more valuable. And, and for some people, that is the case. Everybody needs to be given that chance. And I think what, you know, going back to what you earlier sa- said earlier, the people who say, oh, why don't we just like leave racism at the door? They are not acknowledging that those chances are given way more often to particularly white men within the industry without them showing that they have the capability to handle those experiences or those opportunities. And they're being withheld from other people because there is that there's either bias, stereotypes, racism, or there just aren't enough people representing that identity that have been successful in the industry because the gates have been closed for so damn long. I've been seeing it. I will have white friends who will get their productions made, their full feature films for $100,000. I think that's great that they made it. I think it's a good testament to putting in the work to do it. But Mm -hmm. investors and producers, they want to know that their return on investment is going to be greater than their investment. But what we're seeing is that new indie directors and creatives are getting invested money into them to make their first feature films and their feature films flop. Then they get a second option for their next script. They're putting in more money to that. And we don't know if it's going to flop or not, but they're still getting the the recognition. They're getting the option. They're getting some investment to come into it. Because they have like a railroad track of success that they're already on. My thing is like they got their first one and they failed. Asians mm. don't get the first one because Asian and entertainment investors are so far and few. They're not going to see the empathy, but white people are going to say, no one wants to hear that story because I don't really care about that story. It doesn't respond to me. It's not going to respond to you. It's supposed to, it's not for you. It's for the yeah. Asians, but there's not enough wealthy Asian Americans investing in the entertainment space. And it's only white Hollywood gatekeepers and white Hollywood producers, managers, agents, all those people who are then saying it doesn't resonate with me enough. So I'm going to pass. Yeah. We don't get our chance to fail. White people Mm -hmm. get a chance to fail all the time, no matter what. And fail and be a dick about it. (laughs) Like I've seen people who come on the sets and like, you're an asshole. 
And you're still in this industry and still successful. Why does that keep happening? Asians aren't getting the chance to do as much. And I believe it's because the representation in who they've worked with before and who they see on screen. All they see on screen are generally stereotypes. They're either the funny people. And when you come to work and you're not funny, then what am I supposed to do with you? Oh my God, that's exactly it. And that's why like, we need to stop perpetuating microaggressions within our own community, right? We need to stop playing into tropes of identity and try to figure out who are we really as Asian Americans, as a human being, who am I and how do I fully represent myself on set, in a meeting room, in a studio? Like, How do I be me, authentically me, authentically Asian American? Because that's a place that we haven't, as Asian Americans, that exploration is something that's had a rise in the 60s and 70s with the, the increase in Asian American studies and identity. But I'm writing letters to my university in 2020 to finally get an Asian American studies program put into my college, which I will never get to benefit from. But I hope that other Asian Americans do so that they can see themselves be of value so that like when we're not given the chance, we can say, hey, are you not giving me a chance because you've never seen an Asian American do this before? And studios, on the other hand, need to start asking themselves as well, are we making our selections and our choices because this person has, this sort of person has been successful before? Are we denying other people opportunities by rinsing and reusing the same tired remake of Spider-Man as I have mentioned before. Or using the same directors that they've used before. Even the mm-hmm. a- right, even in the Asian space, like using the same directors and the writers that have made success. But when they do hire an Asian and they go and they don't do very well, they don't get rehired. But yes. why people get rehired all the time right. is because they'll give them another chance. It's like, oh, we hired an Asian once and it failed. Failed. And so we can't ever hire an Asian again. Which is ridiculous. Not all Asians are the same. No. Not all black people are the same. Not all Latin people are the same. It w- and it blows my mind. I, one example that I like to bring up in working context is networking in this industry. Oftentimes, people are given their first opportunities because somebody in power says to another person in power, hey, My kid needs an internship. If you give my kid an internship, I will pass that brief by my boss and we might be able to represent you some way, right? There's a favor for a favor. Two people of power exchanging favors. Later, when said child of person in power totally screws something up, there's a conversation about it. Be like, your child really screwed this one up. And then they laugh about it. But if it was a black person or an Asian person or a Latin person or somebody with a different ability status, indigenous, that screwed up, suddenly they represent their whole identity of people. And then another Asian person, black person, indigenous person with a disability, they're never hired again for that. No, I, I feel like that's that's got to be some sort of bias that it once happened to me, so I'm never going to happen again. That happened to you once. Have you ever talked to? How many people have you talked to? Do all Asians act the same? No. Some of these things you're just thinking. You're going off feeling rather than actually looking at facts, looking at it from their perspective, taking account individual by individual. You can't just take all the Asians and say, well, this one failed, so we don't do that anymore. 
it's the stupid, simplistic bias, quote unquote, easy one stop answer to all of our problems. It all starts with the language, like you said. When the president's going, say they're bringing in the drugs, they're the gangsters, they're the rapists, and they're all these things, then he's perpetuating that fear. So then the people will think, oh, he's smart. He's now the president. So he must know all the information. They think it's true. And that's the same stuff that happens in Hollywood. You, mm-hmm. you present the stereotypes. You say they're hardworking, they're broken accents, they're all these things. And you say, oh, your English is so good. Where'd you learn it? Like everybody like, else did my, in this country. My Spanish is better than my Japanese. Like you have to, you have, <laughs> yeah. that's, that's what Hollywood has seen us as. And that's what they portrayed us as on TV. So then when they, you know, when people watch it in their, in their early years, then they get into Hollywood. That's what they think of people of color. So when you work with them, especially if they come from the suburbs, they don't come from a place of, of diverse mm-hmm. backgrounds. They come to the industry thinking that's how it goes. And they've only seen white people on the screens do well. They've only seen yeah. white directors do well. And so that's all they think that we're capable of. And so it, it perpetuates this thing of they're not they're not worth the risk. Wouldn't Hollywood be so incredible if we all entered it and suspended our disbelief and suspended our biases and thought, here's a place where anything and everything is possible, where we really embodied those values and we gave people opportunities and chances because they could make an incredible story. I mean, I know our world is so far away from that, but I wish it would just be baked into the protocol where if you're in Hollywood in the first few days, somebody's like, welcome to Hollywood. Please acknowledge that everything that you've learned about the world has had some shade of bias, has had some shade of influence that makes you think in a limited way. But here in Hollywood, we are breaking away from our limitations because we're doing incredible things that blow people's minds and keep them coming back for more. Like if we started embracing that in the culture of Hollywood, people would start to see the value of all of this diversity, the value of innovation that comes from different ideas. The tech world has started to do that. And we see the difference in the diversity in the tech space and the lack of diversity in Hollywood. When you embrace Mm -hmm. that this person is a woman, when you embrace this person's a color, different, anything that's different than you, anything, and everybody's different than you. Like, let's just be a fact. Everybody's different than you. It should just be a norm that, (laughs) you know, that you don't know anything about this person. So don't put anything on this person that you heard from somebody else. When I've never met a person and I've heard shit talk about them, I take it as a very small grain of salt and say, that hasn't happened to me. I don't know who this person is to me. So Mm -hmm. I'm not going to, until that person does something to me that I don't like, I'm not going to put anything that somebody else told me about them on it. And the that's that's beautiful. It, we as human beings kind of have stepped away from that. And I think that one extra step that we can add to this is acknowledging that we all have subconscious biases. We are human beings. We created subconscious biases to protect us, right? Back in the flight or fight days of our ancestors, we had to make quick connections with the information that was coming at us to tell us what was dangerous and what was safe. And that has perpetuated into the subconscious biases that we have today. You know, whether it's, I know that I have a subconscious bias against men because if I'm walking alone at night, I am going to be hyper aware of any man that might be around me because I'm trying to keep myself safe. So I'm, I, I'm bringing this example in because 
we as people of color also have subconscious bias against white folks or against types of people, even within our own communities, for our safety. I was having a conversation with a friend of mine that's black, and he said, like, I have to, in my life, I've moved through life thinking that white people might try to do something to me that might harm me so that I can stay aware and not be tricked, hurt, or potentially killed by somebody that's white. Mm-hmm. And and that's like a really sad reality that we also have to juxtapose all of our conversations around diversity. Uh, there's like a level of privilege in that I feel in my identity as a mixed race white and Asian person that I'm not going to be physically harmed for my identity in this day and time. So I can give that grace to other people. Like, I will let you tell me who you are and I will not come with a preconceived judgment about you because I feel safe in my identity in this space and time. And that's a privilege. And not all communities of color, not all Asian Americans feel that same level of comfort. So if you're listening to this, like we we want to hear from you what your experiences have been where you're like, oh, I actually have to move through life with my bias against majority power, men, et cetera, to keep myself safe. Because like we have to start having these really quite uncomfortable conversations in order to call each other in on our biases and be able to work through them and come to a bigger understanding of one another. We limit ourselves in our identity, and not everybody does this, but because we're kind of used to the tropes and information that we get about types of people through entertainment, right? We start expecting that of one another. We start expecting that of ourselves. And you and I have shared this this common like experience of needing to be perfect, needing to overwork, be the hardest worker in the room because that's pressed upon us for our, our Japanese identities. It makes me feel like I have to prove myself. Huh. I feel like I have to prove myself. That's and and that also includes me speaking up a little more because I could be that Japanese who doesn't say anything and just does my work. If I'm going to move up and do something, I'm going to speak up. I'm going to take that confidence and go, what about this? What about that? Try, try things, uh, do things. Right. I, I like this. Let's find a solution. Do something. I, I have that energy and I will push that because that's a part of me, but that's just who you are. Right. But I also right? know Asians who don't, who aren't like that. And that's something to understand as well. Asian kids I try to prove to their parents, but their parents just always just call them stupid or they're not enough. So they don't try to answer and sound stupid. So they don't want to sound make stupid answers. So they avoid the question and they don't say anything or yeah. they don't want to be a burden or they want people like I do this a lot, a lot of times too. I let people go first. And if it's a huge group of people, I let them all go first before me. And then I want to go and then we're, the meeting's over. And then, I'll, and then I'll stand up I'm like, hey, I, I wanted to say something. And now you're all leaving. Like, uh, okay. So one, I feel like that is on me a, a little bit to be, okay, I did let everybody go first. I should just have that confidence. The same time as anybody who's in a leader space, like a showrunner or a director, if someone's not saying anything, especially in a writer's room where everybody's supposed to say something, ask them. That is the inclusion part. And I keep using, I don't know if we've, we haven't used this analogy in this podcast yet, is the Diversity is inviting people of color to your party, but inclusion is include them to dance with you and say, hey, come dance with us, do the thing. That's the inclusion part. And I'm making this one up right here is like the equity part is to say, oh, you don't know how to dance. 
let me teach you how to dance Ooh. instead of going like you don't know how to dance this person doesn't know how to dance david that's really good oh my gosh that's exactly it that's equity teaching them how to dance and acknowledging that there may be a difference and not judging them for that difference yeah, yeah or yeah if they and if they can't dance for whatever ability or mm-hmm. that might they might have like finding a way to get to include that to get them to do it. Don't shun somebody else out. We're all in this together. Like, yeah. There's no reason to exclude anybody for anything. That's, that's a really good example of what, where like even a, an example that's often used in diversity, equity, inclusion, the dancing analogies, that's a very ableist mm-hmm. comment yeah. because not everybody can dance. And I would also add that belonging, right? We like, we love diversity. We love equity. We love inclusion. But what I think is, the most natural and best place we can ever be is when we feel like we belong. And belonging would be not only being invited to the dance, being asked to dance and being taught how to dance, but being told like, you already have a spot in this dance. Like if you're doing a square dance or the do-si-do, like there's an open position for you and we're ready for you. We can't wait to dance with you. That's belonging. That's the feeling, the warm and fuzzies that you get when you feel like you belong someplace. Thanks again to Emmy for this deep dive discussion. Stay subscribed for the second half of this conversation. It'll probably drop later this week, so stay tuned. But that's all for now. Thank you again for listening to Strong Asian Lead. We're already five episodes in and we've had such a great success on our first listenership and outreach. I love having these deep dive conversations and really getting to the nitty gritty of Asian entertainment. What does it mean? What are we doing here? And what are we doing in the future? If I'm having problems with it, it means somebody else is also having that same idea. I know that. And even with our data that we've already collected, we know there are issues within the industry that are so systemic and that are putting barriers on for Asians in Hollywood. So I'm going to plug this crowdfunding again. So please, if you can donate $5, $2, 20 cents, 60 cents, every time someone puts in a little money, I just know that it's not about the money and the donation amount that they're giving. It's about the support. Like to see that happen and someone believe in us, like financially, I think it's just, oh man, it just makes me feel so heartfelt and that it makes me feel good that people want to support this way. And I try to do the same thing for others. Whenever someone's got a podcast or something's going on and I know they're just starting out, I want to help them do that. I look at my wallet and I say, oh, this is what I got. And here's what I can support. It just helps. It really just does. So again, if you can donate to our crowdfunding or share on your channel, share on your Facebook, your Instagram, your stories, whatever you got, I'd appreciate it. I hope that what we're doing is helping you in some way and that we're able to help you further in the future. I'm th- so thankful for my team. They're putting in the hard work that I need them to do. Some of these things that we're putting out there, I've been trying to do it for months. And now that I have teammates to help me do it, it's actually happening. So to see Strong Agent League grow from this idea that we had in early 2020, that it's grown to something that's real and people are actually reaching out to us and working with us and doing something, it's just, I don't know, there's something about it that makes me feel like we're doing the right thing. So if you think we are also doing the right thing, please help us out. I'd really appreciate that. And the link is strongagentlead.com slash crowdfunding. That's it for our episode today. This has been Strong Agent Lead. And I'm your host, David Masami Moria.